This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 30th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Nuclear weapons figure prominently in power competition among states across the globe, and it's hard to overstate the importance of getting nuclear policy right. Eric Gomez and Carolyn Dormany are editors of a new Cato volume, America's Nuclear Crossroads. We spoke last week. The United States has, uh, for a long time, had been totally dominant with respect to nuclear weapons. And there has to be a lot of concern among uh, voters in particular that that might not be the case in the future. Uh, why or why not should should they be concerned about it? Well, the idea of nuclear numbers mattering the most, which was, I, again, one of these vestiges of the Cold War where there was a lot of focus on the U.S. and Soviet Union matching each other in terms of quantity of warheads or missiles or what have you. Um, based off of the ways that different tools can come into the deterrence picture um, and the way that different technologies uh, are starting to have an impact on international relations, generally speaking, but also conflict, more narrowly speaking, I think that worrying about who's number one in terms of warhead count doesn't really capture the realities of what we're dealing with today in terms of the challenges the United States faces and the types of threats that other countries pose to us. I think this is particularly pertinent with respect to my chapter on the nuclear modernization plan and our our annual budgets, to be quite honest, because one of the things that voters tend to care about more is how their money is actually being used. Like, is it going to affect their local communities? Is that money going back into the things that actually change their day-to-day -day lives? Or is it going into a large Pentagon bureaucracy that is not necessarily investing their dollars in the most sound and sustainable way possible? And so one of the things that I look at specifically is over the next 30 years, we're set to spend $1.7 trillion of taxpayer money updating the nuclear arsenal. Is all of that money going towards the right priorities? Um, and th the conclusion that I come to is there are definitely some areas that we can trim where we can better invest taxpayer dollars and, and we can divest of some certain things, especially if we want to use the money that is get, gets freed up to put towards other assets that are going to serve us better in the future. So why doesn't uh, more nuclear weapons add up to more deterrence? <laughs> That's a great question. And I think that this is an issue I examine uh, in one of my own chapters. I wrote two chapters for this. There's nine chapters total. Um, one of the two that I wrote deals with this concept of extended deterrence. And this concept generally means that the United States doesn't only protect itself with its nuclear weapons, it also defends the territory and interests of our allies. Uh, it's a very unique aspect of the U.S. nuclear force. And in the Cold War, more nuclear weapons sort of equal more deterrence because you were locked in a competition with one primary nuclear adversary, the Soviet Union, that was very concerned about matching the United States in the size of arsenal or even potentially trying to uh, get a leg up on one another. In the current situation, the U.S. has to still has these extended deterrence commitments, but we're not worried about a sort of large-scale invasion of 
allied territory anymore. The concerns are much more about gray zone conflict, um, Chinese activities in the South China Sea, for example, uh, cyber disruption and interference. And in the military realm, the question isn't so much about deterring a nuclear war, it's more about trying to prevent smaller scale conventional conflicts from spiraling out of control. And when you have those sort of challenges that are different in many respects from the Cold War challenges, nuclear more nuclear weapons might not impact those situations in the same way. And so what my chapter argues is that we should start looking into other tools that can generate deterrence, which is just preventing an adversary from taking an action you don't want them to take. And we can look at things that aren't nuclear weapons that, that can help deter these new types of more likely forms of competition or, or better manage those forms of competition if deterrence fails. And so that's why more nuclear weapons in the 21st century might not lead to more deterrence because they just don't have as much of an impact on the situation you are trying to prevent. The Trump administration, uh, at least with respect to this president specifically, does want to seem tough, wants to appear tough, wants to appear strong, wants to negotiate from a position of strength. Uh, and with respect to uh, nuclear arms, how well has he performed at uh, making sure that the world is relatively safer uh, after his negotiations than before? Well, I think it's important to kind of separate Trump wanting to look strong and be strong on defense, especially when it comes to arms control, and actually making the world safer. Because if you're talking about actually making the world safer, then we should be investing and preserving our arms control agreements, because that means that there are less nuclear weapons deployed all over the world, and there's less likelihood of conflict. However, this administration has tended to go in the exact opposite way and has chosen to demonstrate strength through withdrawing from all of these agreements. And that leaves us in kind of a precarious negotiating position, because how are we supposed to extend or talk about extending the the, the treaties that are still serving us, like the New START Treaty with Russia that caps both Russian nuclear both the Russian nuclear arsenal and our nuclear arsenal when we have just pulled out of the INF Treaty, which is actually set to completely pull out on August 2nd, so not too um, long from now. And I think arms control is another area where, again, the legacies of the Cold War versus the realities of today really don't match up well. Um, the And if the United States wants to be a leader on arms control going forward, we're going to have to do a lot of creative thinking about how arms control happens um, and what agreements seek to do. Because in the Cold War, the focus was primarily on numbers, making sure that the United States and Soviet Union had rough quantitative limitations on one another so neither built up too much and you could sort of keep the arms race under wraps. And that was very good. That was a very good model for the time period. But now you have the U.S. is interested in having arms control with more nuclear powers and nuclear powers that don't have the same sort of numbers parity that the U.S. and Russia do today. And I think it is possible. The Trump administration has talked about wanting to bring China, for example, into an agreement with the United States and Russia. But 
I think that this is going to require a lot of innovative thinking and a lot of time to figure out uh, that I don't think the Trump administration will accomplish while it's still in office, even if it does get a second term. Um, but it's something that us as outside government experts and also people inside the government need to be thinking about and really not relying too much on past models in order to come up with the innovative solutions that are that we're going to need. Absolutely. I think that Maggie Tennis's chapter on arms control in the Trump era really tackles this problem head on. And she starts looking at, well, what are the current treaties that we have? What are, What's the state of play? And then are these treaties going to be able to be salvaged or should we totally abandon them and, and invest all of our resources and energy in the ones that are the most precious to us, that are that are giving us the most intelligence information, the most security, the most um, information on a bilateral agreement? Like, are we do we need to invest both our time and our energy and our resources equally among all of our arms trade arms control agreements, or can we kind of pick and choose where we should be investing in? What about weapons that render nuclear arms uh, obsolete? I, I was reading recently about this terrifying weapon of like a super bomb that travels at supersonic speeds and can uh, destroy you, go from one place in the world to almost any other place in the world in about 15 minutes. Mm. That, and that's a great question. And there's two chapters in the anthology that examine these subjects, uh, one being Todd Harrison's chapter on outer space and how a more crowded and more diverse space environment um, with more satellites being operated for conventional and nuclear use um, at the same time, what kind of complications that brings into deterrence and preventing escalation and preventing uh, nuclear instability, and then uh, my own chapter on the future of U.S. missile defense systems and how missile defenses um, are sort of this interesting problem because they produce very negative effects for nuclear stability um, in one level, but they can't actually, they don't have the technical sophistication to actually work reliably enough to bring those effects about. So you have countries that worry about U.S. missile defense extremely, to an extreme degree, um, and they take actions to sort of counteract it, um, even though the missile defenses themselves don't won't operate as reliably as the adversary thinks. So you have these action-reaction cycles that develop um, that just become very damaging if you don't get a handle on them. And so what we hope in the anthology is that chapters like this will draw people's attention to these non-nuclear things that impact nuclear deterrence and nuclear stability um, in ways that some of which are, are sort of known, like the missile defense problem is not a new one conceptually. It's been around for a long time. Um, but as the United States adds more technologies and as it grows its missile defense architecture, and as other things such as hypersonic weapons, cyber capabilities, and outer space capabilities become more and more advanced and and enmeshed in how nuclear deterrence works, there's going to have to be a lot of serious thinking on the part of the United States and other nuclear powers about how do we how do we just operate in this new environment? How do we go forward? And we hope that the anthology offers some conceptual tools and also uh, some potential policy recommendations for dealing with these problems going forward. 
Eric Gomez and Carolyn Dormany are editors of America's Nuclear Crossroads, available now at Cato.org. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.